Well, first of all, everybody, welcome. I am so thankful and so grateful that you've come out on a morning like this in November, which uh, uh, more for you, of course, resembles January. Uh, for me, uh, someone like me who lives in Phoenix, Arizona, it represents the deep Arctic north. And, uh, but, uh, but it's a blessing to be with you. What I'd like to do this morning is before we get into the message and the teaching, uh, let me give you a little bit of an introduction so that we can, can get to know one another uh, a little bit better. And uh, come on in, join us, have a seat. It's good to see you again, brother, as folks are coming in today on this cold, wintry day here in, uh, here in northern Michigan. I see somebody else outside the door. So we'll just give it a minute. We'll have her come on in. We waited for you. And uh, feel free, by the way, to take a seat in the front row. Uh, for those of us who are, are fellow pastors, we oftentimes deal with folks who like to always sit in the back, and uh, we tell them to sit in the front, so I'm glad we're, uh, we're sitting toward the front today as well. Uh, let me give a little bit of a testimony. I've already met some of you the past day and a half, but of course some of you are, uh, are new faces. Um, I uh, grew up in a, uh, a Jewish home in Brooklyn, New York, and this was a Jewish home that was called a Reformed Jewish home. Just as if there, just as there are different uh, sects and flavors and blends of Christianity, there are different sects of Judaism. There is Orthodox, there is Conservative, and Reform. The Orthodox Jews are the ones who wear the big black hats and they have the curls on the sides and uh, the big black long coats. And how many of you know that's not me? Uh, then there are the conservative Jews who also try to do their best to, to keep the law but are not as strict. And I really grew up in more of a reformed to conservative Jewish household where basically I was encouraged to go to synagogue each and every Saturday. And under no circumstances were we ever to eat pork unless it was served with fried rice in a Chinese restaurant that for some reason that made a kosher. Uh, obviously, we were not believers in Jesus. And growing up, I was taught that, um, that uh, Jesus was the God of the Christians and that we Jews had our God, the one God of Israel, and the Christians had theirs. That we Jews read the Old Testament, they read the New, and they were nice people. But, uh, you know, in, in terms of belief system, Gentiles or Christians had their beliefs and Jews had, had, uh, we Jews had our beliefs. And uh, I pretty much stayed the same along that track until I was 28 years old and then was faced with an important confrontation in my life when I met the most wonderful woman in the world and she wasn't Jewish. And some of my family members weren't too thrilled about that. And I said, I'm going to marry her. And of course, I figured, well, you know, now that I'm marrying this woman, I'm going to get her to convert and become Jewish like me and have her forget about Jesus. And we'll just be this nice Jewish family. And uh, by the way, how many of you know it didn't work out exactly like that? Uh, God used her to witness to me out of the Old Testament and uh, I, I never realized that you could find Jesus in the Old Testament, but I learned really quickly that he doesn't start in Matthew, that you could find him from the first word of the first chapter of the first book, Genesis, all the way to Revelation. And she had gone to an academy uh, in, uh, in Philadelphia where she grew up that was very focused on evangelism. Um, for some reason, she was one of the few Christians at that time who actually had memorized Romans 11.11. 11 where Paul said, 
in Romans 11, 11, and he was speaking to, to Gentiles. He essentially said that God has chosen the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to enviousness of the Messiah that they rejected and the one that the Gentiles embraced. And, and essentially, if we simplify that, here's what happened. Paul, as we know, brought the gospel first to the Jewish people. Some of us said, fine, we'll take it. The rest of us said, no, no thanks. And that, uh, uh, from that resulted in Paul then bringing the message, obviously, to the Gentiles, who then began bringing the message back to the Jewish people a second time, and they began getting saved. That's part of God's prophetic end-time plan of salvation. And so my wife began sharing with me some key verses in the Old Testament, key places like Psalm 22, which is the prophecy of the crucifixion. And of course, Psalm 22 was written 900 years before the Romans even brought crucifixion into existence. So it didn't only prophesy the crucifixion, but it prophesied that very Roman method of execution. She shared with me Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. She shared with me from the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, which uh, tells us that the promised Messiah would have to be born in Bethlehem. And she shared with me Isaiah chapter 53, which many of us are familiar with because it's the suffering servant chapter of the Messiah. And it starts off by saying, he grew up before him as a tender plant, like a root, like a shoot out of dry ground. He hath no beauty to attract us to him. And of course, verse 5, when you get to verse 5, and that's a key verse in Isaiah 53, it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace or the guilt of our sins is upon him. And by his wounds, by his stripes, by his blood, we are healed. This was uh, very early on in our marriage. My wife chose an opportune time to witness to me because I couldn't get away. We were on our honeymoon. And uh, about four months later in April of 1988, I gave my life and my heart to, uh, to Christ in a place much warm, warmer than this, Fort Pierce, Florida. And uh, it's just such a blessing. And I mean that sincerely. I love the snow to, uh, to be up here with you in northern Michigan at this particular time in November where we're not supposed to be expecting this for another two months. Um, I worked in radio and television prior to going into ministry. Uh, my wife and I uh, uh, lived in Florida for a while. We moved to New York. And then about 16 years ago, we moved from New York to uh, Phoenix, Arizona, because uh, my wife was suffering from chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia. You've probably been hearing a lot about that. And uh, she would get up in the morning after a full night's sleep, do the laundry, and then she'd be exhausted the rest of the day. That's how debilitating this is. But uh, when we, uh, we moved to Arizona... Uh, this hot, dry climate took all of that away, and we've been there ever since. Um, we were uh, uh, following what was called Messianic Judaism. And Messianic Judaism is basically another way of saying Christianity. It's a Jewish blend of Christianity, just as, for example, there are uh, Spanish churches, there are Korean churches, Chinese churches. In Minnesota, there are Cambodian churches based upon the population. Each one of these groups worships Christ in its own culture and context. Well, there are Jewish churches for Jewish people who come to know Jesus, and they're called Messianic congregations because a Jew who recognizes Jesus or Yeshua as their Messiah is referred to as a Messianic Jew, a Jew who obviously has acknowledged who their uh, Messiah is. Uh, <clears throat> when my wife and I went to Phoenix, 
we were attending a Messianic Bible study that we found out about. It wasn't yet a congregation. Uh, and they met every Saturday morning. Now, you figure for a Saturday morning Bible study, a Messianic Bible study, you probably figure, wow, maybe you guys had like 15, 20 people. Try 150 to 200 every Saturday morning. And I think it had to do with the, well, two reasons. Number one, it was very well organized. But number two, I think it had something to do with the folks who organized it. Because the organizers were a wonderful lady by the name Kim Campbell and her country singer husband, Glenn. And uh, my wife, Sandy, and I have been friends with the family ever since. I'll take this opportunity, by the way, to ask you some sometime today or in the near future when you think about it, please keep them in prayer. Uh, Glenn is in uh, stage six of Alzheimer's disease. I went to see him in July at a memory care facility in Nashville. But uh, he knows the Lord. He loves the Lord. And uh, I just thank, uh, uh, thank him for all he's done. Uh, about uh, 15 years ago, my wife and I in Phoenix uh, founded Tree of Life Messianic Congregation, of which I'm the senior rabbi, senior pastor. And about 10 years ago, I joined on with a wonderful organization whose logo you see up here called Jewish Voice Ministries International. This is a Christian organization that realizes the calling of Romans 116 where Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, first to the Jew and also to the nations. And so we make it our business wherever we go to share the gospel with everybody. But we also want to make sure that as our primary focus, we reach Jewish people because they are one of the most unreached people groups to hear the gospel. Because a lot of people think, well, the Jews are the chosen people, so you don't need to evangelize to them. <clears throat> and how many of you know that's a lie from the pit? We need to share the gospel with them as well because Christ says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, in fact, just last week, uh, our ministry held a, a major conference where we had leaders in from all over the world, including uh, one of our best buddies. And if you're from the, uh, in particular, the Assemblies of God or even the Foursquare Churches, uh, you know his name. My wife, uh, Sandy, and I have... Uh, I have known Jack Hayford now for the past uh, 15, 20 years. Just a, a wonderful, wonderful man, and it's always good to see him. So I praise the Lord for that. I was uh, uh, absolutely um, blown away when I got up uh, this morning in my room and I turned on the television because right before I turned on the TV, I was thinking, you know, this is wonderful. We're going to come this morning and we're going to talk about understanding the crisis in, in the Middle East. And we are going to be doing that. What was really shocking to me is as I turned on the television, and normally when I turn the TV on, the first place I go is to a news channel because I used to be a newscaster, but also because I want to know what's going on in the world the minute I get up. And I turned on the news, and uh, as I'm still wiping the, the sleep out of my eyes, the first thing that I see is I turned it to Fox News, and they're saying that uh, there was a... Um, an incident uh, today, or actually about seven to eight hours ago, Jerusalem time in Jerusalem, Israel, in a synagogue in West Jerusalem, where uh, two Palestinians in their 20s who live in East Jerusalem came into this uh, synagogue wielding axes, knives, and guns, shot and killed four people who were praying, worshiping in the synagogue. I believe three of the fatalities were American, one was British, and six others were injured. Um, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu obviously has denounced this as an act of terrorism, blaming it on Hamas. 
and uh, and and so it continues. And uh, he also believes that uh, this is going to increase. This type of stuff is nothing new. We know that back in July and August, uh, Israel and Hamas were engaged in a conflict that lasted 50 days. A lot of us know current events, but what a lot of us don't know is how all of this really got started in the first place. Why is there so much animosity and hatred between Palestinians and Jews? Why is it that you have this land of Israel, which is barely the size of the state of New Jersey, which I've heard on some accounts that that Israel itself could probably comfortably fit definitely into Lake Michigan, most certainly into Lake Superior, She's this isolated little land, a little bit more than 8,000 square miles. All she wants to do is live in peace. Yet she is surrounded by nations who are armed to the teeth and who are bent on her destruction. The question is why? And after we get through with this teaching, you're going to have all the answers. Because I think many of us know some of the parts of this story. But I've met very, very few people I can count on one hand in my life who know all the parts of this story. When we get through this, I'll be able to add you to those hands. Understanding the Middle East crisis, many people think that the uh, skirmishes, the wars, if you will, between Palestinians and, uh, and Israelis, perhaps, well, maybe it goes back to 1973 or 1967, or perhaps it even goes back to the year 1948 when Israel first became a state. Uh, Actually, it goes back uh, some 1,400 years ago. Before I get into the teaching, though, let me tell you a little bit of a story to set this up for you because I want you to understand the mindset and the culture of the Middle East. It's a fantasy story, but it drives the point home, and it goes like this. seems that one day on one of the banks of the Nile River, there was a crocodile getting ready to swim across from one side of the Nile River to the other. Next to the crocodile was a scorpion, and the scorpion also wanted to get to the other side of the Nile River. Now, the problem is that while crocodiles can swim, how many of you know that scorpions can't? And if indeed that scorpion got in the water and tried to swim, he would immediately sink. And so the scorpion said to himself, how do I get to the other side of the river? Well, he turned to his right, and he saw the crocodile, and he said, Wait a minute, this is perfect. The crocodile can get to the other side. I know what I'll do. I'll ask the crocodile if I could hop on his back and if maybe if he can give me a lift across. And so the scorpion said to the crocodile, I see you're about to cross the Nile River. I need to get to the other side too. Would you give me a lift? I'll just hop on your back and you can take me across as well. And the uh, crocodile said, he said, Oh, Mr. Scorpion, he said, Don't think that I'm such a fool. For I know that that you are my sworn enemy and that the minute I get to the middle of the Nile River, you will sting me and I will die and I will sink. So how could I possibly grant your request? And the scorpion said, now, Mr. Crocodile, think about what you just said. Why would I want to sting you? Because if you sink and die, well, I will sink and die as well because I can't swim in the first place. Why in the world would I want to do that to myself? Well, the scorpion thought, he said, uh, the crocodile thought, and he said, yeah, I guess that does make good sense. And so he said to the scorpion, hop on. 
So the scorpion hopped on the crocodile's back, and the crocodile began to swim across the Nile River, swimming, swimming, and everything's going fine. And just as the crocodile gets to the very, very center, the midpoint of the Nile River, tell me what happens, everybody. The scorpion stings the crocodile. And at that moment, the crocodile starts to, starts to sink, to go under the water, and the crocodile turns his head back, and he said, why in the world did you do that? Now we are both going to die. It doesn't make any sense. To which the scorpion replied, it doesn't have to make sense. This is the Middle East. Now you're ready. For the teaching this morning. Understanding the Middle East crisis. As I said, this Middle East crisis that we're dealing with today, my friends, actually didn't begin 50, 60 years ago. It began closer to 1,400 years ago. First, <clears throat> let me bring you up to speed and let's go back to the time of Jesus. We know that there has rarely been a time back in those days in history where Israel was under her own rule and government. During the days of Christ, and as you can see, even before, from 63 B.C. to around 380 A.D., Israel was under Roman rule and Roman domination. The Roman government, the Caesars, Tiberius, they were the ones who called the shots in the land of Israel during this particular time. By the way, what you're looking at on here is a relief that is found on, I believe, the great arch in Paris, France, the Arc de Triomphe, and it has this design on it. This is a design of the Roman soldiers under Emperor Titus desecrating and destroying the temple in Jerusalem in the year 70 and carrying out all of the, uh, the goodies that they pillaged, among them, obviously, the golden lampstand that would have been in the temple at that time. So Rome ruled over Jerusalem until about the year 380 A.D., they got kicked out, and the ones who kicked them out were the Byzantines. The Byzantine Greeks came in and ruled or dominated Israel from the years 380 to the years 637 A.D. So they were in there for, oh, looks like about a good 250, 260, 70 years or so. And then in the year 637, the Byzantines got kicked out. And when the Byzantines got kicked out, let me show you who came in. <clears throat> the Muslims came in, those who believed in and worshipped their God, Allah, and who followed the teachings of their prophet, Muhammad. Now, you could see that, uh, <clears throat> obviously, the, the uh, world of Islam came in and had domination over Israel from the year 638 to 1099. What you're looking at right now is a shot of the old city in Jerusalem. And you're looking at this shot from the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is to the east of the city. You are looking in a westerly direction. And this, of course, is called the Dome of the Rock, which actually was built during this particular period of time. So the Muslims are ruling over the land of Israel. And at this time, you're probably wondering, I wonder how these Muslims and these Jews got along. And there are two answers to this. In the first couple of years, actually, pretty well. They got along mostly pretty well as friends because it was Islam's goal to try and get these Jewish people to embrace the Muslim God, Allah. And how many of you know that didn't work out too well? And when the Jewish people basically said to the Muslims, they said, you know, 
thanks a lot, but we'll take our own God. Then all of a sudden, this friendship that had started out nice really wasn't too warm and fuzzy anymore. And it might have also had something to do with the fact that in the holy book of Islam, in the Quran, it tells Muslims how to treat those who don't embrace the God of Allah. Let me show you a couple of verses, and it's a compilation of them. It says in the Quran, On unbelievers is the curse of Allah. Seize them and slay them wherever you find them. Fight against them until Allah's religion reigns supreme. Now look at this. Do not take Jews or Christians as friends. For in the hereafter they shall be among the losers. They are the vilest of all creatures. They're talking about us. They are enemies of Allah. They're talking about us. And they will roast in hell. They're talking about us. Nice stuff, isn't it? So you can see that when the Jewish people at that time, as they were living alongside Muslims in Israel, when the Jewish people basically said, no, no, thanks, listen, we don't want your God, Allah. We're, we're doing quite well with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This friendship between the two that had started out pretty well deteriorated really, really quickly. And then the Jews began to suffer severe persecution under Muslims at that time. In fact, it was also at that time that Muslims decided that Jews needed to be designated a certain way so that the minute you ran into somebody on the street, you would know that they were a Jew. And that's actually where the Muslims basically forced Jewish people to wear yellow stars in the star, in the shape of the Star of David. If you think that was a Nazi Germany invention during the 1940s, no, it started way before that. Now, the good news is that around the year 1099, the Muslims got kicked out. That's the good news. The bad news is, here's who came in. Here we go, my friends. From 1099 to 1244, you have the Crusaders who are in Israel. And uh, while on the one hand, the Crusaders were very, very passionate about Christ and passionate that everybody would become a Christian, how many of you know you sometimes can be a little bit too passionate in your witnessing? Uh, I will tell you in case you haven't already figured this out, uh, murdering somebody when they don't accept Christ is not exactly the greatest witnessing tool to use. So the Crusaders are here in Israel from 1099 to 1244. The good news is, around 1244, the Crusaders got kicked out. Yay, no more persecution from the Crusaders. Here's the bad news. Guess who came back in? So the Muslims once again come into the land of Israel and announce that everybody once again needs to believe in their holy God, Allah. And the persecution continues from the years 1260 to around 1517. <clears throat> After this time, once again, the Muslims got kicked out. Now, when they got kicked out a second time, this one really hurt. And the reason it really hurt is because when the Muslims got in both times, they said, you know, we are not here in this land by accident. We are here because our God, Allah, wants us here to claim this land for him. And ever since that time, the Muslim world has believed that that land, Israel, belongs to Allah and that those who inhabit that land must be believers in Allah to honor him because he gave them that land as a gift. Are you following where I might be going with this? Keep that in mind. That's an important fact. So... The Muslims get kicked out again, and let's see who comes in. Ah, my friends, it's the Ottoman Turks. 
And they have dominance and influence in Israel and Jerusalem for, it looks like, a good 400 years. From the years 1517 to 1917. In 1917, though, they got kicked out. And the reason they got kicked out had something to do with the fact that 1917 was a very, very pivotal year, not just for that land, but for the entire planet, because we were in the midst of, or just finishing up, World War I. And one of the major players in World War I was Great Britain. Let me go on to the next slide over here. Great Britain said that they made plans at that time around the uh, 1916, 1917. Great Britain planned to conquer the Ottoman Turks because Great Britain basically said, you know who we want in that land right now? We want us in that land. We want to have influence in that land. Why in the world did Great Britain, this government from thousands of miles away, have any interest in things going on in the Middle East? Why do they want to kick the Ottoman Turks out and have a position of influence there? Well, that's easy. It's one word. It's three letters. Everybody say it with me. Oil. So Britain makes plans to kick out the Ottoman Turks. But Great Britain realizes, they say, you know, we can't do this alone. We need help. So who are we going to get? Britain has an idea. They say, wait a minute. Why don't we play that great, fun, fast-paced game called Let's Make a Deal? And here's how it works. Great Britain went to the Arabs, to the Arab Muslims. And Great Britain said, they said, listen, we know that you guys are still licking your wounds after getting kicked out of that land, not once, but twice in your history. We also know that you guys are pretty good fighters. So here's what we need you to do. We want the Ottoman Turks out of that land in the Middle East. And uh, tell you what. If you Arab Muslims help us and we can have some of your fighters uh, and help us kick out those Ottoman Turks, then uh, after those Ottoman Turks are out, you know what? We're going to give you a piece of land so that you can have some of your honor back. Well, the Muslims jumped on it. They said, we're on board with you. We're going to help you out. Britain also at the same time went to the Jews. And Great Britain said, uh, uh, you know, uh, we know that, uh, that you Jewish people have been looking for your own homeland. And uh, we want those Ottoman Turks out of the Middle East in that land of Israel that, that you claim is your home. So, you know, we got the Muslims helping us out and they're going to help us out. We're going to give them a piece of land. So would you Jewish people like to help us out too so that after we all kick out the Ottoman Turks together that you're going to get some land? And our people said, sure, let's do it. So Great Britain, with the help of the Arab Muslims and the Jews, fought against the Ottoman Turks And the Ottoman Turks got kicked out. And when the Ottoman Turks got kicked out, it was time for Great Britain to pay up. And so Great Britain said to the Arab Muslims, they said, okay, we're going to give you a piece of land. And Great Britain said to the Jews, we're going to give you a piece of land. And here, my friends, is what the map looked like. It was called the British Mandate. And let me show you, or if you're listening uh, uh, online, I'll also describe to you. Today, the stretch, if you will, of the land of Israel, which is a very, very thin strip of land, starting in the north at Haifa and going all the way down to a town called Eilat by the Red Sea, pretty much that strip of land at that time was given to the Jews. Britain said, okay, for you Jewish people who are helping us out, listen, you guys are going to get Israel. Of course, back at that time, it was actually called Palestine 
Why was it called Palestine? Was it because the original inhabitants were Palestinians? No. It was called Palestine because many years before, the Romans had actually named that land Palestina. That's an Italian word that refers to the Philistines. It was kind of a slap in the face to the Jews to name their land after their very own arch enemy. And so Great Britain said to the Jews, we're going to give you that narrow strip of land. And then Great Britain said to the Arabs, now here's what we're going to do for you. You Arabs can have, uh, let's see, we'll give you Jordan and part of Syria and uh, also Lebanon. Considerably, by the way, more land than was given to the Jews. And Britain said to both sides, they said, how do you guys feel about it? And the Jewish people said, oh, this is wonderful. Thank you. We've got our own land. We're happy. Everything's great. And Britain said to the Arab Muslims, how about you guys? Look at all that land you have. Are you happy? And they said, no. He said, well, why aren't you happy? And they said, well, here's the reason we Arabs aren't happy. Yeah, you've given us this land, obviously, to rule over and have a government for. And we believe that land obviously belongs to Allah. But Great Britain, here's the problem. The problem is, you see that land that you gave to the Jews? Well, we believe that that land belongs to our God, Allah, too. And so even though we have all this other land now that we can claim for Allah, the problem is that this land is now being inhabited by those who don't believe in our God, Allah. And our Quran says that they are supposed to be cursed. We cannot allow it. Don't you understand, Great Britain? It is such an offense to us that those who, who essentially slap our God in the face are now residing over and ruling over that land. No, we're not satisfied and we won't stand for it and we will die for it if we have to. Well, obviously, the Arab Muslims wanted that piece of land as well. They didn't want a single Jew on it. But how were they going to get it? How many of you know they couldn't just ask the Jews and say, hi, we know that you guys were given that land, but could you give it to us as a gift? They knew that that tactic wouldn't work, so they tried another. Violence. It's now the 1920s, and we have Arab riots in Jerusalem. You have... Arabs who are living in the land that they were given, Jordan and Syria, but you also have Arabs, Muslims at this time, living in Israel who decide to incite riots. And so and this, during this particular period of time in the 1920s, it was common for Jewish people on the streets to be attacked, to be knifed, mugged, murdered, or worse. The Arabs were trying to send a message to those Jews, get out, this land belongs to us. By the way, the slide that I just skipped over, and let me go back to it, the land agreement that was made, there was a, uh, a special designation given for it. This is a copy of a letter, a picture of a letter, written then by Lord, uh, Britain's Lord Arthur Balfour, who said, His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. So basically a letter was written to say to the world for international recognition that the Jews would now have their own land of Israel. As I said a moment ago, the Arab riots started. And as these riots are going on, the Jewish people are complaining to Great Britain, who's basically supposed to be making sure that both sides play nice with one another. And the Jews say, look, you've given us our land, you've given the Arab Muslims their land, here's the problem. They keep attacking us. And Great Britain, you guys are the ones who put this agreement in place. So you need to tell those Arabs to knock it off. 
So Great Britain had an idea. They said, why don't we get a hold of somebody who's really, really high up in the Arab community and appoint them as, uh, oh, kind of like a, a, a negotiator, uh, uh, um, an arbitrator, a, a peace ambassador to tell their people to stop bothering and attacking the Jews. Let me show you who Great Britain chose. His name was Haj Amin al-Husseini. And he was designated the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. The Grand Mufti meant that he was the religious leader for the Arabs. Britain basically said, look, your Arab people will listen to you. Tell them to stop the riots. Now, how many of you know he was just as much in favor of the riots as any other Muslim was? So he didn't exactly tell them to stop. And he got in trouble for it with the British government, who later pardoned him. But as a result, if you will, he, in essence, told his folks to, let's keep those riots up. It's working. He had no love for the Jews. In fact, in the early 1940s, he met with uh, one of his best and greatest friends, none other than Adolf Hitler. So these were no friends to the Jewish people, by the way. It was also, by the way, during this time while these riots were going on, that there were Arabs who actually had bombs attached to themselves. And when they went into the company of Jewish people, particularly in large groups, they would blow themselves up. If you think homicide bombers are a recent development, they're not. The idea of a Muslim blowing themselves up and taking the lives of others is nearly 100 years old. So let's go on. This is probably one of the most important photos to have etched in your mind if you want to understand the conflict in the Middle East. Obviously, I told you a few moments ago about the riots that were going on in Israel by Arabs in the 1920s. Things only got worse. And the goal of the Arabs was to pressure Great Britain and tell Great Britain, look... Great Britain, you keep allowing Jews to come into Israel. Uh, you know, uh, we're not crazy about that. And you need to stop them from coming in. And you need to put an embargo on it. Uh, or, you know, maybe we're not going to be so nice to you with the oil interests that you have. And so Britain actually put an embargo on the number of Jews they allowed to come into Israel, their own country. This photo is part of it. And for those of you who would be listening online, let me tell you what we're talking about. All of us now are looking at a photo of a boat, a ship called the SS Exodus. The year is 1947. On this ship, there are many, many people, hundreds of them. Most of them are Jews. And most of them have come on ships like this from places like France, from places like Germany, from other countries in Western Europe, where only a short time earlier, many of them have gotten out of the concentration camps. The liberation of the concentration camps occurred around 1945. And if you were somebody who was Jewish and you had been in a concentration camp and you were now being liberated, here was the question for you. Where do you go? Because you've probably been hoarded onto the camel cars from places like Poland. And now that you'd been liberated, maybe your first thought was to go back to Poland. But the problem was there wasn't anything for you to go back to anymore. All of your family was gone. You no longer had a job. All of your possessions were gone. You had to start a new life. And so many of the people on this ship, the SS Exodus, were Holocaust survivors. And they boarded these ships and the idea was, well, since we are people really who can't go back to the country where we came from, let us go back to a country that has been given to us where we can identify as Jewish people. Let's go to Israel. 
And so they got on boats like this to go to Israel. And one of these most famous boats is the SS Exodus. The reason that it's famous is because when this boat actually got to Israel and docked in the port of Haifa, the good news is that all these people came off the boat. The bad news is that only hours later, these people were put on three other separate boats and the boats went right back to the countries where they came from. The question is why? Because Great Britain had put an embargo on saying, no, I'm sorry, we have more than enough Jews in the land of Israel right now. No more can come in. How many of you know that the Jewish people basically said, okay, we won't stand for this at all? What made matters worse was an event that happened at this particular hotel. You're looking at a shot of the King David Hotel in Jerusalem. And by the way, if you go to Israel today, you can still go and visit the King David Hotel. It is still there. It is one of the most prestigious hotels in all of Israel. This is what the King David Hotel looked like uh, right around uh, the mid-1940s, 1946 or so. And it says the King David Hotel Jerusalem before... The question is, before what? Well, with all this embargo going against the Jewish people, the Jewish people finally had had it. They said, this is ridiculous that we can't come and inhabit our own land that was given to us by international decree. We need to send a message to Great Britain that we're not going to take it anymore. In the King David Hotel, there were obviously guests staying there. You know who else was staying at the King David Hotel? The officers of the British High Command. This is where they had their headquarters. And on a morning in 1946, a paramilitary group of Jewish people called the Irgun, I-R-G-U-N, decided to send some of their soldiers into the basement level of the King David Hotel. They strategically planted explosives, obviously designed at a certain time to blow up the King David Hotel. But before those explosives went off, the Jewish soldiers made some phone calls. One of their phone calls was to the local newspaper saying, we just want to let you know we've got a story for you on tomorrow's front page. You'll find out about it in about an hour. The second call they made was to British army officers who were upstairs in the hotel. And the gist of the calls was, we are Israeli soldiers. We want to let you know we have planted explosives in the basement in this hotel. This hotel will be blown up shortly, and so we are giving you a courtesy call to let you know to get out so that you may walk away with your life intact. The response from the British Army officers after getting such a phone call was, yeah, thanks for the phone call, but we don't take orders from Jews. Click. Shortly after those phone calls, the King David Hotel that it looked like this before those explosives were planted now looked like that. And part of the hotel was blown up. This, of course, sent a message to Great Britain that, you know, it really wasn't worth staying in Israel and trying to babysit these Israelis and Arabs anymore. And so Great Britain decided it was finally time to get out. But let's look at our next slide. As Great Britain was preparing to leave, they said, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to leave, but, but another agency needs to be put in place to make sure that the Jews and the Arabs get along with each other and, and, and to make sure that everything is fair, that both sides are treated fairly. And of course, what better organization could you find that would be, be fair to both sides than, ladies and gentlemen, the United Nations? 
And so in the year 1947, when the UN takes over or picks up where Great Britain leaves off, the UN basically looks at what's been going on for the past 30 years since this first land uh, uh, distribution. And the United Nations basically says to the Jews, they say, you know, we know that in 1917... Britain gave you this really nice narrow strip of land along the Mediterranean. When we also know that Great Britain gave the Arabs Syria and Jordan, but, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem to be working out. Now, you Jews can do one of two things. You can continue to hold on to your land, but they're still going to incite violence and kill you. Or, or why don't you do this? Why don't you Jewish people give away pieces of your land, some of your land to, uh, to those Arab Muslims, and, and then everything will be fine. That way peace can be achieved. I know you're going to have to give up some land, but trust me, it'll be worth it. And so that deal was arranged in what you have up here called the United Nations Partition Plan of 1947. Now, do you remember what the maps looked like before? Here's what it looked like in 1917. The Jewish people were given this strip of land, the Arabs were given this strip of land, and everything is fine. But because of Arab-Muslim violence, all of a sudden, 30 years later, look what happens. This land that was given to Israel, now only the blue, the blue, belongs to the Jews, but now the red now also goes over to the Arabs as well. So they get the West Bank, they get part of the northern areas, they get the Gaza Strip down here. And Israel, or the Jewish people, now have some of their land taken away, which sends a powerful, powerful message to the Arab Muslims that if you incite enough violence and enough terror, whether you're right or wrong, you keep it up and you will get what you want. Now, in the midst of this, even though this was not a particularly good time, the Jewish people agreed to it. And they agreed to it perhaps because good times were about to come less than a year later when, in 1948, Israel became her own state. May the 14th was the date. No more British domination. Israel could now call the shots on self-rule. And uh, in fact, on this day, May the 14th of 1948, uh, her first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, said, We hereby proclaim the establishment of the Jewish state in Palestine to be called Israel. That's when it happened. And the way that it did happen, by the way, is that uh, early on in this day, there were still British troops there. But by that afternoon, the last of the British troops had left. And uh, David Ben-Gurion, their first prime minister, had held a meeting in a museum building in Tel Aviv, and it was voted that Israel would now become her own state. It happened all in one day. And you know what? It was supposed to happen in one day because that's the way that the Bible prophesied that it would. Let me show you the prophecy of this particular event. It's found in Isaiah 66, verses 7 and 8. The verses say this. Now listen closely. I'm going to take some pauses along the way. Before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Okay, I need to take a pause there. Because in case you haven't picked this up, how many of you know that's weird? Now, my wife Sandy and I have had three children. And I was directly there in the hospital for two of them. I can tell you with confidence that she had labor pains before our children were born. Is there any other, anybody else here who can attest to that? Okay. But what this says is it says, no, 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 before she goes into labor, she gives birth. 
So what Isaiah is saying is he's saying, look, we got some, something unusual here. There's a birth of a child coming, but instead of the usual process where the labor pains come first and then the birth of the child follows, no, 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 no. The birth of the child comes first and then the labor pains come after. And that's why he says in this verse, who has ever heard of such things? Who has ever seen things like this? And then he goes on to say, can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Two prophecies going on here. The first one is that Israel would be born in just one day as a new nation. It happened some 2,600 years after this prophecy. 2,540 or so years. But there's a second prophecy in here. Look at this where it says, before she goes into labor, she gives birth. So the birth of this country came and then the labor pains followed. Does that make sense? Sure it did. The birth of the nation of Israel was easy. All it took was a vote of people saying yay. The birth was the easy part. But the day after Israel became a state, five Arab nations and another two by proxy declared war against her, and the pains have been going on ever since. You've got a dual prophecy here, and it's been fulfilled. Let me show you, if you will, what followed. Here's what followed the day after Israel became a state. Those five nations that I told you about decided to attack Israel. A surprise attack, although really it didn't uh, catch Israel off guard. This one day old nation that is just trying to get on its feet. And all of a sudden, the day after it declares its independence, five Arab nations, Egypt, Syria, an area called Transjordan, now we know as Jordan, Lebanon and Iraq, attack her from the north, the south, and the east. She couldn't be attacked from the west. She couldn't live there. It was the Mediterranean Sea. She was attacked on all sides. Logically, Israel should have been decimated and destroyed then. Logically, we shouldn't even be talking about an Israel today. Logically, she should have been wiped off the face of the earth in 1948 or severely damaged. Guess what? Within a matter of days, Israel defeated and knocked down the forces of every single one of those countries like dominoes. Logic and common sense, it doesn't make any. The only reason Israel was victorious is because of the Lord our God. Now, while all of this was going on, there's an interesting backstory, Because during this particular time, before these Arab nations attacked, there were Arabs who were living in Israel at the time. And uh, these Arab nations basically said, they said, you know, uh, we want to attack Israel, but we don't want our Arab people who are living in Israel to get hurt. In fact, we want them to get out of the way. And so Arabs, the uh, Arab radio broadcasters got on the air and they made a special announcement. And they said to the Arabs who were living in Israel at the time, they said, oh, our Arab brothers and sisters, your liberation is coming. Tomorrow we will be attacking the land of Palestine. We want you and your families to get out and run to the borders so that you may fight with us. And when we emerge victorious, you will go in and not only go in back into your home, but you will also inherit the home of your Israeli neighbor. So come and join us now. At that same time and that same day, Israeli radio broadcasters got on the air with a message in Arabic to those same Arabs living there, basically saying, we will send our 
men and our women to fight for you. We consider you our brothers and sisters and family. Just don't run to the borders to fight against us. And the following day as this attack was launched, thousands of those Arabs who had been living in Israel ran to the borders to fight against Israel. And when those five Arab nations lost, many of those Arabs who'd ran to the borders decided, well, okay, I guess our side lost. Well, it was a good couple of days. It was nice handling a gun. I guess I'll go back home. And so they went and tried to go back home, back into the land of Israel. But there was a little problem when they got back to the borders. The Israeli police wouldn't let them in. They said, where are you going? They said, well, you know, I'm from Haifa and I want to go home. They said, well, what do you mean? What are you doing out here in the first place? Well, I was here kind of helping out Jordan and Transjordan and Iraq. And, uh, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry, you can't come back in. You have proved that you're a traitor to our country. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, you were bent on our destruction. You, you can't come here. You don't live here anymore. And so many of these Arabs are saying, well, where do you want me to go? Saying, well, why don't you knock on Egypt's door or Syria's door or Jordan's door, Lebanon's door or Iraq's door and say you were willing to give your life for them. Surely they will allow you into their country to live now. And so those Arabs who'd been living in Israel, who'd been displaced, knocked on the doors of those countries, and those countries basically said, we don't want you. Look, our idea was that when we emerged victorious, that you would colonize Israel for us as the new Palestine. But sorry, that didn't work out, so go find someplace else. And so all of a sudden you had these tens if not hundreds of thousands of displaced Arabs who had nowhere to go and ended up in refugee camps. The spin on this story is that there are two different versions. One version is Israel kicked out all the Arabs who were living there. The other story is the Arab countries told those Arabs to get out by force. Which story is true? The one that can be backed up in fact. And it's this one. Let me show you this slide. You're looking at a photo of former Syrian Prime Minister Khaled Al-Azem who was the prime minister of Syria while all of this was going on. And in his memoirs in the 1970s, he wrote that this particular issue, this problem was caused by, here it is, these are his own words, caused by the call by the Arab governments to the inhabitants of Palestine to evacuate it and leave for the bordering Arab countries. Now listen to what he says. We brought destruction upon a million Arab refugees by calling on them to leave the land. And yet the world blames Israel for the refugee problem. They themselves admit they orchestrated it. And so you had these hundreds of thousands of Arab refugees now living in camps. People without a country, having nowhere to go, without an identity. Until one day, one among them arose and he said, I have an idea. He said, you know, uh, my great granduncle was a guy named Haj Amin al-Husseini. And uh, he showed that with violence, we can get whatever we want and convince people of anything. So why don't we do this? Why don't we start inciting violence in a big way? And let's, let's send out those homicide bombers again. That's worked, that worked out real well. Let's hijack airplanes. Let's call, cause so much terror. And when the world asks us why we're doing it, we'll tell them because we are the original inhabitants of that land. It used to be called Palestine. So if we're the original inhabitants, we will call ourselves Palestinians. Let's make the name up. 
And if we incite enough violence, the world will believe us and, and uh, we'll appoint a Palestinian police force and a Palestinian, Palestinian government and, and we'll even make a Palestinian flag and the world will buy it hook, line, and sinker. One guy among them arose. You might have heard of him. The great grandnephew of Hajamin al-Husseini, his name was Yasser Arafat, the leader of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Spreading the idea that now there were Palestinians who were the original descendants. And indeed, that is something that the world has come to believe too. That, well, you know, uh, uh, is, these Israelis need to, uh, uh, need to get out of land that belongs to the Palestinians. The Palestinians were the original inhabitants of the land. Actually, there's no such thing as Palestinians. Now, it's pretty easy, and you'd probably figure, well, you know, naturally, Rabbi Jack, you're Jewish. Of course, you're going to say that. Do you have maybe somebody else's opinion who might be more non-biased? Well, yeah, would you like to get the opinion of a Palestinian himself? You got it. Here's our next slide. You're looking at a picture of Palestinian Liberation Organization Committee member Zahir Mussein. In 1977, he conducted an interview with the Dutch newspaper Troll, where he was brutally honest, because they were asking him, tell me about the history of your people. We don't see anything. And here's what he said. This is a guy who identified himself as a Palestinian. Listen, the Palestinian people does not exist. The creation of a Palestinian state is only a means for continuing our struggle against the state of Israel. Only for political and tactical reasons do we speak today about the existence of a Palestinian people. Folks, they themselves have admitted they made the whole thing up. And yet the world doesn't want to hear that. The world wants to legitimize them as the original inhabitants of that land and the one to whom the land of Israel rightfully belongs. One statement isn't enough for you. Let's get another. This is a shot of my friend Walid Shobat. He's a former Palestinian terrorist who gave his life to Christ. He goes around the United States and the world now preaching the truth of the good news. This is an honest man. Let me tell you what he says about Palestinians because he used to be a homicide bomber. Why is it that on June the 4th, 1967, I was a Jordanian, which most of those Arabs were, by the way, and overnight I became a Palestinian? We considered ourselves Jordanian. Then all of a sudden we were Palestinians. They removed the star from the Jordanian flag and all at once we had a Palestinian flag. When I finally realized the lies and the myths I was taught, I felt it was my duty as a righteous person to speak out. And he's been speaking out ever since. How many of you know he's got a price on his head because of it? This was June the 4th of 1967. On June the 5th, the next day of 1967, these Arab nations got together and they said, you know, we came against Israel in 1948. We didn't do so hot. But it's been 19 years and I think we should give it another shot because we're better organized now. And so the following day, June the 5th of 1967, these Arab nations try it once again in what has come to be known as the Sixth day war because that's how long it lasted the same arab nations in particular egypt etc jordan and syria and others say let's do it again like we did it in 1948 but now let's do it better because we're better organized so once again those arab nations try to defeat the land of israel and once again they lose 
And Israel, in its defense, takes control of the Sinai Peninsula, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, and the Golan Heights. You're allowed to do that in defensive war, folks. And when this happens, obviously, as you can imagine, once again, these Arab nations are disgraced, but they're not giving up. Six years later, they try it again. But they think they have the advantage this time because of the day that it happens to be. The year is now 1973. And this attack by these Arab nations came to be known as the Yom Kippur War. Let me tell you why the Arabs felt that they had a real advantage this particular time. Yom Kippur are two Hebrew words that mean the Day of Atonement. It is the holiest day, the holiest holy day in all of Judaism. This is the day when Jewish people for the entire day of this particular holy day are in their synagogues, most of the time with their eyes closed in prayer. That means that the soldiers are not at their tanks. That means that nobody's holding any gun on this day. That means Israel is vulnerable on this day because all of the soldiers are in the synagogues and nobody's minding the store. And how many of you know the Arabs knew that? And they said, see, this is the mistake that we made in the past. Somehow Israel was already out there on the lines ready for us. But it's Yom Kippur. Listen, they're not going to be ready for us. They're all in their synagogues worshiping. We got them. And for the first couple of days, let me tell you, it was touch and go. As Egypt and Syria launched a surprise attack. Yet after a couple of days, Israel got back up on its feet. The soldiers went out and the Arabs lost yet again. At this particular point in time in history, the United States decided to get involved and said, you know, Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, and so politically it's to our advantage to see if we can help out in this situation. Why don't we see if we can finally help, because Britain failed, the United Nations failed, let's see if the United States government maybe can help these two nations get along. And so we fast forward, if you will, to the year 1993, when then-President Clinton was in office and brought together Yasser Arafat from the PLO and then-Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin in what came to be known in 1993 as the Oslo Accords because part of these talks occurred in the capital of Norway, which is the city of Oslo. The whole idea was basically the president sat down with both of these guys and said, what do you want? Rabin said, we want to be left alone. Arafat said, We'll leave you alone, but you've got to give us more land. And so the deal was made. The Israelis would give the Palestinians self-rule over the West Bank and the Gaza Strip in exchange for peace. And when that happened, the terror attacks stopped for maybe like about a week. And then after that, the bombings continued again. Because you remember, I mean, look, even though the Palestinians are now getting the West Bank and getting the Gaza Strip, here's the problem. The rest of that land that belongs to Israel? <laughs> no, 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 the Muslims can't tolerate that because they believe that that land belongs to their God, Allah. And when you've got the unbelievers who are ruling over Allah's land, how many of you know that's a real problem? That is a real insult to the God, Allah. And if you don't do something about it when it comes time for you to die, Allah is not sending you to paradise. He's sending you here. So you've got to change the rules. 
The terrorism continued, and seven years later, these two parties got together again in what was known as the Camp David Summit. Some of the players are the same. President Clinton is still there. Of course, he's put on a couple of pounds, and that's seven years in between. To the right, PLO leader Yasser Arafat. To the left, however, Israel has a new prime minister. It's no longer Yitzhak Rabin. It is now Ehud Barak. And once again, the president sits both of them down and says, what do you want? And Ehud Barak says, we wanted the same thing that we wanted seven years ago. Leave us alone. Yasser Arafat says, well, we wanted the same thing seven years ago. We want more land. And so Israel offers to give 97% of the West Bank to the Palestinians. If you are at the negotiating table with someone, sometimes the best you can hope for is 50-50. If you are sitting at the negotiating table with someone and you get 97% of everything you ask for, how many of you know you get up from that table and run before the other party changes their mind? Yasser Arafat was given 97% of everything that he requested and he still said no. And of course, the bombings and the terror attacks continued. We fast forward now to the year 2005. In 2005, realizing that there would be no easy solution to this, the Israeli government decided to make a very, very tough, difficult decision. In the Gaza Strip at that time, there was some eight to 9,000 Israelis who were living in settlements. The decision was made that the Gaza Strip now also needed to be given to the Palestinians so that they could have self-rule, which means that every last Jew had to get out of here. You're looking at a very historic photo. This is in 2005 where we have the forced evacuation of Jewish settlers from Gaza. See the two police women on each side of this woman? The woman in the middle is Israeli with her daughter. The two police women are Israeli. Nobody's happy. The police women aren't happy about pulling her out of her home and evacuating the Gaza Strip. And the mother with the daughter is not happy about leaving. But this is what the government tells them they have to do so that there can be peace. Let the Palestinians come in. We need peace once and for all. We can't take the bombings anymore. Imagine somebody coming to your home and saying, listen, I'm sorry, you need to get out because we've got this other country bombing us and the only way they're going to stop is if we give them your house. But that's exactly what happened in 2005. When the Israelis got out of the Gaza Strip, we left a couple of nice things there. This was one of them. When the Israeli settlers were in the Gaza Strip, we had a thriving horticultural business. This was one of the greenhouses. And this is what the greenhouse in Gaza looked like before the Israeli evacuation and before the Palestinians came in. The Israelis left it for the Palestinians as an olive branch, saying, okay, we'll give this land to you. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to leave you the greenhouses. We'll leave you all the irrigation equipment so that you can come in. You can hit the ground running. You'll already have a business. You'll already have something to to provide yourself with finances so that you can have a thriving economy. It's yours. Use it. Go. Be blessed. Let's live in peace. And that's what it looked like before the Palestinians came in. Here's what it looked like right after. When the Palestinians came in, they basically destroyed the greenhouses. They essentially said the same thing that the British soldiers had said, the high command had said some uh, 40, 50 years earlier. Thanks, we don't need any favors from you Jews. And, and we don't need any of your greenhouses. And uh, don't worry about us. We don't need any favors from you to help us with money because what we're going to do 
is we're going to tell everybody we're in dire need. And uh, that we have no food, we have no infrastructure. That you Israelis aren't providing anything from us and the world is going to believe us. And not just other Arab countries like Iran and Iraq and Qatar. They're going to send us humanitarian aid too, but we're going to get the United States to send us humanitarian aid. And then we are going to spend the money the way we want to so that we can have a thriving economy with the goals that we want to achieve. Let me show you where the money went. Boom. There it is. Oh my goodness, these people in the Gaza Strip are so poor. They have nothing. They're dying. They're starving. Nobody has any money. Folks, they got a lot of money. You just have to spend it in the right places. This is not the right place. And so, obviously, much of this money went to equip a military force, Hamas, which is an offshoot, by the way, of the Muslim Brotherhood, of whose idealists were, among others, Osama bin Laden. And the goal, of course was then and is still now to get every last Jew out of the land of Israel because that land belongs to Allah. And of course, as many of you are aware, the most recent skirmish or conflict between Hamas and Israel occurred for a 50-day period this past July and August. And at that time, Prime Minister, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu got on the airwaves because people were blaming Israel for the rocket attacks. The Prime Minister said this. He said, one must understand how our enemy operates. Who hides in mosques? Hamas. Who puts arsenals under hospitals? Hamas. Who puts command centers in residences or kindergartens? Hamas. Hamas is using Gaza residents as human shields and bringing disaster to their civilians. Therefore, for any attack on Gaza civilians, which we regret, Hamas and its partners bear sole responsibility. The Prime Minister said that in regard to Israel defending herself. Because here's what was happening. Hamas, as you know, was firing rockets over into Israel, killing innocent Israeli civilians. Israel was responding by sending rockets back to blow up Hamas rocket launchers. But it seemed that every time Israel sent a rocket over to Gaza, to the Gaza Strip where Hamas was, instead of hitting a rocket launcher, they would hit and hurt schools and hospitals and people and that's certainly what it seemed like but now let me tell you what the media didn't tell you first of all why were there innocent civilians getting killed if you will in the gaza strip well maybe because hamas was using people as human shields Here's one evidence of it. You're looking at some footage, actually, from aerial footage from uh, an Israeli plane where, as you could see, there are people grouped together. Israel wanted to take out a major terrorist here, but he had surrounded himself with children, fully well knowing that Israel was not going to launch a rocket if it meant killing an innocent individual. Now, do I have any other evidence of Hamas using human shields? I sure do. Wouldn't it be great if Hamas themselves admitted that they use people as human shields? Yeah, and they do. Take a look at this slide now, if you would. And let me tell you about the two characters in it. The guy in the upper left-hand corner, his name is Sami Abu Suri, and he is the Hamas PR spokesman. The guy in the upper right is one of the ministers of Hamas, Fatih Hamad. And they address the subject of using people as human shields in here. These are their words, not mine, for all the world to see. Listen. The fact that people are willing to sacrifice themselves and, against Israeli warplanes in order to protect their homes, this strategy is proving itself 
And we, Hamas, call on people to adopt this practice. For Palestinians, death became an industry at which women, children, the elderly, and all on this land excel. Accordingly, here it is, folks, Palestinians created a human shield against the Zionist bombing machine as if to say to the Zionist enemy, we desire death as you desire life. They themselves admit they use innocent people as human shields. Maybe that's one reason there were casualties, because Hamas was taking otherwise innocent people and intentionally putting them in harm's way. Here's another reason. We know that uh, Israel was dropping leaflets on Gaza. Before Israel launched an attack in a certain place, they would drop thousands of leaflets, basically saying to someone, this building that you're living in, you need to get out of the building. Evacuate the building because we will be bombing this building in a half an hour. So get out now with your life. Israel gave them advance warning. Kind of like the same thing Israel did with the British High Command officers with the King David Hotel. Now those officers didn't get out because they were just belligerent. What about these people once they got the leaflets? Were they belligerent? Is that why they stayed? No. They tried to get out. But as they were leaving, guess who forced them back in to die? Hamas. Don't believe it? Got the evidence. Here it is. The Palestinian National and Islamic Forces got on Palestinian Hamas TV and announced this. We call on our Palestinian people not to obey what is written in those leaflets, those pamphlets distributed by the Israeli Occupation Army, but to remain in their homes and disregard the demands to leave, however serious the threat may be. This is a death sentence. And so, of course, the idea was this. Israel sends the leaflets down, tells everybody to get out, assumes everybody does. 20 minutes later, Israel bombs the building. And then when that building is blown up, Hamas, knowing that all the casualties are still there because they forced them to say, Hamas says, CNN, Fox, ABC, NBC, look, we need to show you something. Everybody come, bring your cameras, look at this. Look at all of these dead people over there. Look how Israel is killing innocent civilians. This is terrible wouldn't be innocent civilians if Hamas didn't force them to stay. Why else were there casualties in the Gaza Strip? Well, it might have something to do with the lack of proper aim. The fact of the matter is that during this period of 100 rockets that were fired from Gaza, of the rockets that were fired, and there were several thousand, 100 of the rockets that were fired from Gaza fell, actually fell within Gaza. So Hamas was firing from civilian areas firing into Israel, but those rockets fell and hit and killed their own people. And by the way, when those Palestinian civilians were killed by Hamas rocket blast, and Hamas called the media over and said, look, we have more people, dead people, this is terrible. Guess who they blamed the casualties on? Israeli rockets. Why else? Well, let's take a look at this. First of all, you need to know that some of these innocent civilians were not so innocent after all. Most of these civilians killed in Gaza looked exactly like this guy. Here's another reason. This is a very disturbing picture. What you're looking at here is this was on a particular day when Hamas rounded up those it felt were Israeli informants. They put bags over their heads and they shot them dead. And then after they were shot dead, once again, they said to the media, come, come over, look at this. You see these people? They were killed by Israeli soldiers who shot them in the heads. Folks, this is called propaganda. This is how you use it. And these people know how. So let's go on. 
Fast facts. Who's to blame for the civilian deaths? Well, let's see. Hamas was firing from civilian areas, using its own people as human shields, sending its own people back into harm's way. Hamas rockets would misfire, killing their own people. Hamas would label militants as innocent civilians. Hamas would kill informants, saying that Israel killed them. In fact, number seven, Hamas kidnapped and killed three Israeli teens in June to start this whole process. So when you look at it this way, you would probably say, oh my word, if there's anybody to blame for all this nonsense, it's got to be Hamas. That's called logic and common sense. But that's not how propaganda works. Here's how propaganda works. It works this way. When you see protests going on in Paris where people are saying, Israel, stop killing children. Because people believe the lie. We're almost done here. Just a few more slides. I want to just give you an idea. We've been talking about the Gaza Strip, but I want to put this land, this area in perspective for you. Here, if you will, is this section called the Gaza Strip, obviously in southwestern Israel, just north of the Egypt border. Here it is on an actual map of Israel on a map so that you could see it. The Gaza Strip is 141 square miles in land area of 1.8 million people. And uh, it just so happens here we are in Michigan in terms of size, the closest city in our state right here that matches it is Detroit, 139 square miles, about 700,000 people. So here's what I want you to do. Take the population of Detroit, triple it, and put it into about the same square mile area as Detroit, and this is what you've got. A lot of people concentrated in this very, very narrow area. Let's go on. After 50 days of conflict that occurred in July and August, Here's how things ended up. 71 Israelis were killed. 64 of them were IDF soldiers. Seven of them were civilians. Hamas fired during that time more than 3,700 rockets in Israel. 2,629 Palestinians killed. 11,000 wounded. More than half a million displaced. 20,000 homes and 32 tunnels destroyed. It seems, it would seem, obviously, that the Palestinians were decimated on this one, wouldn't it? And indeed they were. But that's not how the Arab world would like you to perceive this. Here was the reaction. Hamas says, we will continue to arm ourselves. Any truce that we engage in now is for the purpose of planning the next terror war against Israel. We have dazzled the world with our victory. Iran, or Iran. The heroic Palestinians have forged a new era with a victory, which has brought the Zionist regime to its knees. This victory prepares the way, here it is, this is what it's all about, for the final liberation of all the occupied lands, especially Al-Quds, Jerusalem. The goal ever since the mid-600s has been the same. The Muslim world believes that Israel belongs to Allah and only believers in Allah can own and possess it. That means the Muslims. Let's go on. In this latest ceasefire that we have right now since the truce, here's what each side wanted. Israel wanted Hamas to disarm. Hamas wanted Israel to open up more border crossings to allow humanitarian aid and construction materials in. Here's what each side got. Israel got a promise that upcoming talks would address disarming weapons from Gaza. We're still waiting on that. Hamas got Israel to open up more border crossings. Future talks will also address the release of 100 Hamas members arrested during the conflict and the construction of a Gaza seaport. That's where we're at now. Can it last? Because as you know, we're in a ceasefire right now. The conflict ended at the end of August. So far, the rockets have stopped. 
Is it going to last? Not likely, because the goal still needs to be reached by the world of Islam to get every last Jew out of there and give that land back to Allah. And that's why the Hamas charter says this. Peace initiatives, so-called peaceful solutions, and international conferences to resolve the Palestinian problem are all contrary to the beliefs of the Islamic resistance movement. Israel, now listen to this, this is scary. If you take home anything, take this. Israel, by virtue of its being Jewish and of having a Jewish population, defies Islam and the Muslims. And yet Israel is the one accused of racism. Is this really all about occupation? That's how the media has been presenting it. And unfortunately, I even hear some well-meaning Christians saying this. It's that, well, you know, if Israel would just get out of, uh, out of a land that it's occupying that belongs to the Palestinians, there would be peace. That's what this is all about. Well, folks, read your Bibles. First of all, this land is not Palestinian land. They invented the name Palestinian. And according to God, this land belongs to the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, not through Ishmael. Israel right now is less than a quarter of the size that God deemed it to be. There is no Palestinian land. Israel is not occupying anything. And by the way, this issue has never been about occupation. It's been about Muslim hatred against the Jewish people. How do we know? This photo proves it. Let me tell you a little bit about it. This photo was taken on a February afternoon in the year 1948. You're looking at Ben Yehuda Street in uh, Jerusalem. And Ben Yehuda Street in Jerusalem did not normally look like this. It was normally a nice street to walk down. But as you can see, there's a problem on this street. Whoops, there is. Let's go back. There's obviously a lot of debris on the ground. There is smoke rising from buildings. There's damage. There's destruction, sign falling down, broken glass everywhere. Almost looks like a bomb hit it, doesn't it? It's probably because a bomb did hit it. Not just a bomb three bombs. On that morning in February of 1948, Arabs and British troops got together and drove three huge trucks down Ben Yehuda Street. Trucks were loaded with explosives. And at a particular designated time, those trucks were detonated and blew up. More than 50 Israelis were killed. Scores were injured. And the question is, Well, you know, all of this is, it's all about land for peace. It's all about Israeli occupation. That's why the Arabs are attacking Israel. Well, my friends, here's the question. If that's the case, and this is all about occupation, what was Israel occupying at that time to cause such an attack against them? Answer, nothing. Because it was February of 1948. Not only was Israel not occupying Palestinian land, but since she wouldn't become a state for another 11 weeks, she wasn't even totally an authority of her own. This has never been about occupation. This has been about hatred of the Jewish people. What's it really all about? Anti-Semitism. Why does the world hate the Jews? Well, Jesus said in John 4:22, salvation is of the Jews. Our salvation as Christians comes because of blessings that God poured out on the Jewish people. We serve a Jewish Savior, folks. No wonder Satan hates the Jewish people in Israel. If Satan can destroy Israel, then he figures Jesus cannot return to Israel. And then the devil will have thwarted God's end time prophetic plan and the salvation of the world. That's what this is all about. 
It's not about occupation. It's not about Palestinians. It goes right back to this. So the question is now, how does it end? Where do we go from here? Is there any answer? After Condoleezza Rice and John Kerry and others failed, is there any hope? Yeah, there is, and that's why I've got this picture up there now. The Bible tells us in Psalm 122.6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem that they who love her shall prosper. And we understand that only comes when the Prince of Peace comes back. Jesus, when he returns, he indeed will bring everlasting peace. And then none of us have to have to worry about any of this nonsense ever again. We might not like what's going on right now, but the good news is we know how the story ends. Amen. Let me close us in prayer. Avinu Malkenu, our Father, our King. Wow, Lord, we've learned an awful lot in the past hour or so. And Father, we understand that peace, true peace, can only come from you and you alone. We ask, Lord God, for that peace that would be over the land of Israel. And Father, our hearts are breaking uh, because of the incident that happened in the synagogue in West Jerusalem today. We look for a time, Lord God, that people, whoever they are and what label they wear, whatever they call themselves, Father, would denounce their false gods and would all embrace the one God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is the God of the triune nature, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We long for that day, great day, Lord God, and we thank you. In Jesus' precious name, and everybody agreed and said, amen.